if you were to go outside and run on the flat ground and start out slow and count the number of steps in a minute, and then you pick up the pace, and then you count the number of steps again in a minute, you should notice that the number of steps doesn't change much. You'll only take maybe a few more steps over the whole minute. You may not take any more steps over the whole minute. What influences the change of speed is the stride length. Because without even thinking about it, when you try to run faster, you apply more force to the ground. So it's Newton's third law of physics that we all learned about in high school. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So the more force you apply down and backward against the ground, then the more distance you're going to cover with each step, you're projected forward a farther distance. Hello, my fellow runners, and welcome to episode seven of Runner Clicks, the passionate runner podcast. I am your host, Whitney Hines. I'm a lifelong runner, a certified running coach, and founder of the motherrunners.com, a resource for moms who run. And today's interview is with renowned running coach and author, Dr. Jason Karp. At the age of 24, Jason was one of the youngest college head coaches in the country, and now he is the first American coach known to have moved to Kenya to coach Kenyans. Jason has written a dozen books, including Running a Marathon for Dummies and Running for Women, and he has a passion for the science of athletic performance. In addition to being a coach and author, he's an exercise physiologist, speaker, and creator of the Revolution Running Certification, which has been obtained by coaches and fitness professionals in 25 countries. Jason's research has been published in many peer-reviewed journals. He's also been an instructor for the USA Track and Field Level 3 Coaching Certification and for coaching camps at the U.S. Olympic Training Center. For Jason's contributions to the industry, he's been honored with several awards, including the President's Council on Sports, Fitness, and Nutrition Community Leadership Award. Two times he's earned that. So with all this knowledge, Jason and I had a lot to talk about. The interview is basically a two-parter. We chat about what he's doing in Kenya, what it's like for the runners living there, and what he's trying to accomplish while he is there. Then we go on to bust some common misconceptions about running that are not backed by science, like does strength training really make you faster and does your cadence actually matter? So I am really excited for you guys to hear our conversation after this short message from RunnerClick Pro. Hey, Jason, can you hear me? Yes. Awesome. So for everybody listening, you are currently in Kenya and we had some connectivity issues because you are half a world away and you said this is your life now, but we're connecting and my apologies if the audio quality isn't stellar, but hopefully you can hear all the wisdom that Jason is about to share with us. So thank you so much for making the time to chat with me today. Oh, yeah, thank you for having me all the way from Kenya. <laughs> so can you fill us in on what you're doing there and how is it going? Yeah, well, I moved here in uh, November. I was here in 2019 for a running camp. And then ever since that camp, I thought this would be a great place to come and coach because there's, there's really no scientific training that goes on here. There's no individualized training. People just training groups. And, and honestly, they're really just relying on their talent, which there is a heck of a lot of here. But I thought what a great opportunity would be to, to move here for some time and establish a group of my own and coach that group. And so I had to wait a while because of the pandemic. And 
And so in November, I finally uh, took the leap of faith and, and moved out here. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm in a small rural town. It's called Iten. It's about an hour outside of the major city of Eldoret. And this is the, the epicenter of running in Kenya. All the talent is, is centered in Iten. And, uh, you know, every day you walk outside and you see runners running around and and uh, it's not like the U.S. where most people are, you know, running for different reasons. Here, you either don't run at all or you run to be the very best. And so it's a very unique environment because it's a very poor part of the world and it's a very, very poor part of Kenya. And so all these athletes, they, they view running as their way out of poverty. They have no other way to get out. And so they're all running every day with the intention of trying to become the very best so that they can attract an agent and a manager and, and get the opportunity to race in Europe and the U.S. so that they can win money and, and make a better life for themselves. So it's quite an interesting environment to be in. Yeah, I would think with an environment like that, where they're all trying to be the best, like, is there a lot of camaraderie? Because, you know, obviously the running community is very big on lifting each other up. Do they feel like everyone can rise or is it kind of, I want to be the best at any expense? Well, it's it's more of the, the former, that uh, even though they all want to be the best because they all want to get out of poverty, they all train in groups together. So you don't see any Kenyans just training by themselves. And so they do lift each other up, but it's more from a competitive standpoint than it is from a community standpoint, not like... Like in the U.S., you know, we have lots of local running groups all over the country, and it's more of a social thing, whereas here, it's all to, to train their butts off and to, to push each other, and so it's more from a competitive standpoint, but they do support each other, and they do all train groups. The group training is, is very important here. It's a very big part of, you know, if you want to call it the Kenyan running secret, it's a big part of the, the secret of what they do is that nobody trains alone. They all train in groups and there's usually a leader to the group who controls the pace and, and it gives a chance for the, the younger athletes who aren't as experienced to try to hold on to the pace and push themselves. And so it's, it's pretty unique in that regard that there's a lot of uh, support for you know, each other, but it's from a competitive, very competitive standpoint. So I'm curious how the process worked. Did you just kind of show up or did you do some, put some feelers out there and do some legwork prep before you arrived in Kenya? Yeah, there was actually quite a lot of homework that I did before getting here. I mean, I knew the situation because I had been here in 2019. So I didn't come here completely cold. Mm-hmm. And so yeah, there was a lot of homework I did to find out you know, what it's like here, but there was still a lot that I learned when I got here because uh, it's, it's not like the U.S. where you can just throw a bunch of people together and call yourselves a group and, and uh, start coaching them. There's a lot of hoops to jump through. And, you know, the national governing body here is called Athletics Kenya. It's their version of USA Track and Field. And, uh, you know, they, they keep a close eye on things here because a lot of the athletes do get exploited by managers and agents because there is so much talent here. And so that kind of stuff I didn't know until I got here. But before I came, yeah, I had some connections with the camp I was associated with. And so I talked to them a lot. And, and even the place I'm staying, it's owned by, it's a guest, athlete guest house. Uh, it's owned by uh, this guy from the Netherlands who came here when he was in his 20s and now he's in his 40s. And he married a Kenyan woman and, and he lives here now. And so... I talked to him a lot about the situation. So, yeah, there was quite a lot of homework I did before coming here to find out whether it would be possible for me to accomplish here what I want. And what is that? Well, there's a few different things, but uh, one is to uh, bring the scientific training to the Kenyan runners and to help them, you know, and for me to grow as a coach and for me to learn from them as well as from them to learn from me. And then, of course, to, you know, to have to to publicize it, to have people see what's going on here, because people only hear about, you know, like the stars, like Ilya Kipchoge, the ones who make it to the Olympics. People have no idea what's going on here because they don't see the thousands and thousands of other runners who never get the chance to leave this country and race. And so they don't know what's going on here. And so I want to, you know, help these runners and publicize what they're doing and help them get support. 
So, yeah, so I have a couple of different goals for why I'm here. But one of the reasons is because, to my knowledge, there's never been an American coach who has moved Kenya to coach the Kenyan runners. There are some coaches who come from other countries, mostly European. But to my knowledge, there's never been someone from the United States who's come here. And so that is appealing to me. I wanted to, to do that because it's never been done before. And so then do you help them find reputable managers and agents once that you've developed them and they've had a chance to race? And Yeah, and so that's what I'm learning now since I've been here for about six weeks. That's what I'm learning here because right away they assume that, you know, they see a white person and right away they assume that I'm their savior and that I'm going to help them get out of this country, you know. And so, yeah, once I get to uh, know some more aging, like I do know some people in the U.S. who do that. And so uh, even though I'm not an agent or a manager myself, but I, I do know people. So, yeah, once we get deeper into the training and they start racing and I see what they're capable of, then I'll start reaching out to the people I know in the U.S. to see if they're willing to, to represent these athletes. Because there's a lot of hoops that they have to jump through. It's not just about the money. It's not like, you know, here's $1,500. You can go get a, you know, book a flight to the U.S. They have to go through Athletics Kenya. They have to get like a letter from Athletics Kenya, giving them permission to leave the country. It's not easy for them to get a visa like it is for us to get a visa to come to Kenya. It's very hard for them to get a visa to leave. So there's a lot of red tape. There's a lot of bureaucracy with Athletics Kenya. But the, the manager or the agent can navigate that for them because that's that's what they do and so that's my plan is to make them as fast as i can make them and then put them in touch with people who know the system and can help them race in europe and in the u.s that's amazing and so your time there it's an open-ended trip you don't know when you'll come back to the states i got myself a one-way flight i do have one big thing in the U.S. in the middle of March that I can't turn down, it's a TED Talk that I was supposed to give in March of 2020, right when the pandemic happened. Mm-hmm. So that was postponed a few times, and now it's been rescheduled for March 12th in Idaho. So unless it gets postponed again, my plan is to come back to the U.S. in March to give the talk, and then I'll come right back to Kenya. And what's the topic of the TED Talk? Uh, the title is How Running Like an Animal Makes Us Human. So it's all oh. about working from the inside in. It runs contrary to what we're told as a society that we should work on our inner selves and manifest what we want. And, and I've always looked at things the other way, that we are physical animals first. The physically, the human existence, the human experience is physical. And if you work on the physical body and make the body strong and the body enduring, it literally changes you on the inside. It changes your brain, which affects your mind. So that's the topic of the talk is looking at things from the outside in rather than from the inside out. Oh, I love that. I feel like we could talk for an hour for this podcast just on that topic. <laughs> and I wrote a whole book during the pandemic because uh, my plan was to write a book based on the TED Talk, but I thought the TED Talk was going to happen first. So the book comes as so the TED Talk will happen first because the, the book doesn't come out till June 1st. So just by a couple of months, it looks like unless the TED Talk gets postponed again. It looks like the TED Talk will actually end up happening first. But I wrote a whole book on it. And, yeah, I'm looking, excited to, to see the book come out and to give the talk on it. What's the title of the book? The title of the book is Workout. And the subtitle is The Revolutionary Method of Creating a Sound Body to Create a Sound Mind. And so that's your 13th book? Yeah. Yeah, that'll be number 13. Lucky 13. <laughs> and then you have a 14th one in the works already, right? On your experience in Kenya? Yeah, so I'm going to write a book here, Coaching in Kenyan. So I actually pitched that to a publisher before I even came here. And so uh, I signed the contract right before I left. So yeah, so it'll be a mixture of me telling the story of an American coach coaching the Kenyans, as well as a lot of training, you know, about how they do things here and what works and what could be done better. And so training lessons from Kenya from the perspective of an American coach living here. Okay, I'm going to, I want to come back to that. Before I do, are you able to shed some light just kind of on like what a typical day for one of your Kenyan athletes is like, and then what a typical day for you as their coach is like? Yeah, it's very eye-opening. And this is the stuff that I'm, I'm glad you're asking this because this is the stuff I want to you know, get out. I want to voice this and, because people don't know what goes on here. 
So, you know, they're very, they live a very simple life. They're very, very poor. It's a rural town, but it's different than a rural town in the U.S. And even in the U.S., we have rural towns and we have farmers. But here, it's, they have absolutely no money. They can't even afford a banana. And so they run twice a day. So they run in the morning or we do a workout in the morning. Like uh, this morning, I met them at the track for a workout. We met in town and we took a van to go to the track. They don't have transportation. They don't have cars. They don't have a bicycle. They don't have any way to get around other than on foot. So they walk around a lot and they run around a lot. And so they do their first run in the morning. I was shocked when I found out how little they have to eat throughout the day. You know, all this stuff I hear about on Instagram about refueling. There's a lot of nutritionists on Instagram talking about they talk about fueling all day long. I wish I could bring them all here and see what goes on because it's it's remarkable how the human body can adapt to the situation that you have. And so one of the things that I, I just I'm astounded by is the level at which they're able to to train and, and race despite the fact that they eat very little throughout the day. And so after the workout, they go home. I mean, I've been buying them bananas after the workout. They don't even have the money for a banana. But uh, they usually just have some tea. Tea is very uh, popular here. They have a chai tea that they make. And, and so they have very little calories, and it comes from very basic stuff. It's mostly carbohydrate. The only protein that they get is from milk. They don't have enough money to buy meat. And so it's a very bland diet, you know, potatoes, beans, rice, this thing called chapati, which is almost like a pancake. It's almost like a tortilla kind of a thing that's fried. And uh, and that's really their whole their whole meal. They have this, their secret food is called ugali, which is like a corn meal. It's a very bland thing. It's, I've had it already a handful of times here and I'm already done with it because it's, it's very tasteless, but that's the thing. It's very cheap for them to make it. So that's what they live on. And usually then they take a nap, you know, because they have nothing to do. They don't have full-time jobs like we have in the U.S. And so they usually take a nap in the afternoon and then they go out for their second run. And they come back and, again, they eat whatever they do. It's a life. It's a lot of just hanging out, recovering, sleeping, and running. Everything is a bad run here. There's not a whole lot else going on. Okay, so two questions from that. When you say it's interesting just how the body adapts to be able to run as much as they do without taking in calories and and their bodies, it seems, don't break down, whereas you hear a lot over here and from a lot of people's personal experiences how, you know, they weren't fueling properly and they ended up getting injured. How... Yeah, Go ahead, yeah, go ahead. I just, I mean, you, you said it's amazing to see how the body adapts. I'd love to hear your thoughts more on that. I mean, are you thinking, is that like generational over time that those adaptations happen? The Kenyan's biology is different than, you know, the Westerners. I, yeah, I'd love to learn more about what your thoughts on that are. Yeah, well, yeah, the biology is the same. I mean, they're human, just like we're human. But you know, it's interesting. I'm glad you asked that because I posted about this on, on Facebook and Instagram. You know, I have no proof, obviously, because I haven't tested this. But I think there's at least one of three things that are happening. You know, because they eat very little, but what they eat is mostly carbohydrate. So they're able to get at least enough carbohydrate in to support the training. And so I think there's a few things that might be happening. One is that, uh, you know, and the research does support this, even though the Kenyans have no idea about this research. But, you know, when you train in a glycogen depleted state, because carbohydrate is the muscle's preferred fuel, even though the public would love it to be fat, carbohydrate is the preferred fuel of muscles. And that is such an, an important concept in physiology that any situation that threatens the body's supply of carbohydrate forces adaptations to take place. And one of those adaptations is that you create a bigger fuel tank. So when you deprive yourself of carbohydrate, the body will respond by synthesizing and storing more carbohydrate when you do consume carbohydrate. So the little bit that they do consume, you know, possibly they're making a bigger carbohydrate fuel tank as an adaptation. The other adaptation is what your liver does in situations in which carbohydrate fuel tank is low, it will take things that are not carbohydrate, namely lactate and amino acids, and convert that into glucose. And that's called gluconeogenesis. 
Neo meaning new, genesis, the formation of glucose. So it's the formation of new glucose from non-carbohydrate sources. And so, you know, Americans can do this too. You know, that's why the whole big thing about fueling during long runs, well, sometimes you shouldn't fuel during long runs because you want to force your liver to become really good at gluconeogenesis. And so it's possible that the Kenyan's liver has been trained to become very good at creating a carbohydrate fuel tank because they're lacking in it. And then the third thing that probably happens with the Kenyans is that they become basically fat adapted. They become very good at utilizing fat for energy because that's another thing that will happen when the carbohydrate fuel tank is very low. What else is left to use as a fuel source? It's fat. And so perhaps their muscles have become excellent at using fat as a fuel because they're not taking in enough calories from carbohydrate. So it's possible that those three things are what's going on with these athletes because they're not consuming 2,000 or 3,000 or 4,000 calories a day like they do in the U.S. It is possible, though, for the body to, to look for other sources that could be detrimental, like muscles, muscle wasting, breaking down the proteins in muscles, right? When it's carb de- depleted while yeah. running. Yeah, and so, so normally protein only... You know, yields about five to ten percent of the energy that you use when you run, but that can go up to as much as about fifteen percent in situations in which the carbohydrate fuel tank is low. So when you when you know and this happens like toward the end of a marathon, when there's no more carbohydrate left in the tank, well, you got to take what's left, and what's left is fat and there's some protein. But protein is usually conserved because it has other roles to play. And so we don't like to use protein. The body doesn't want to have to use protein unless it must. And so, yeah, that too, it's possible. But when you look at them, I mean, the Kenyans are very thin. They don't have a lot of muscle mass. And that's one huge difference between the Kenyan runners and Caucasian runners from either the U.S. or Europe, that uh, the Kenyan runners have very little muscle mass on their legs, which helps them as a distance runner. So it is possible that they're using more protein than what normally would be the case, but they're not wasting away. Like they don't look anorexic. Hmm. So it's probably, they're probably not using so much protein that they're wasting away their muscles because at least from the outside, it doesn't appear that that's the case because they they certainly don't look that way. They don't look emaciated. They look healthy. They just don't have a lot of muscle mass to begin with. So what would be your key takeaway from this observation for Caucasian runners? I mean, we're, I would imagine you're not telling people, Hey, start doing all your long runs, carb depleted, don't fuel on your runs. I mean, how can you take this and use it for the people that you coach here in the States, for example? Yeah, well, it's more the other way around. Okay. More nutrition. You know? So yeah. I'm trying to you know, raise money as a fundraiser so I can raise money to, to get them more food. And so, yeah, I'm not saying that everyone else should copy what the Kenyans are doing because the Kenyans probably would be even better runners if they ate more. So the fueling, you know, as we all know, is very important. However, having said that, yeah, I tell U.S. runners all the time that there are certain things that they can do, like Sometimes on a long run, you shouldn't take in all the goos and the gels and the things that we have available to us because it does create a very strong signal to create a larger fuel tank when you deplete the tank. And if you constantly take in the goos and the gels and all these other carbohydrate products, then you never deplete the tank. You're maintaining blood glucose. And so you're using that as a fuel all the time. And so you never threaten the the fuel supply. And that's an important thing to do if you're interested in being the very best runner you can be. If you're running a marathon just because you want to run a marathon, then, you know, then go ahead and, you know, take as much fuel as you want during your long runs. But if you're trying to force physiological adaptations to take place to improve your performance to be the best that you can be, then sometimes, not every long run, but sometimes you should do the long run without having breakfast first. And you shouldn't take carbohydrate during the long run because you want to deplete the tank. That's one of the purposes of doing such long runs all the time is to deplete the tank so that you respond and adapt to that situation by making a bigger fuel tank because that's what improves endurance for next time. 
So do you have the same advice for both men and women? Because I know you've written a book on women's running and obviously the way that hormones work in women are a lot different than for men. So is it the same advice for both genders? For the most part, but the, the, the major differences when it comes to women and, and carbohydrate intake is more like during the, the tapering phase when you're carbohydrate for the big race. Because for women, they also need to consume more calories, whereas men only increase the percentage of their calories that come from carbohydrate during that time. Whereas for women, carbo-loading works a little bit differently that they need to consume total, total calories has to be greater in addition to the, the percentage of calories coming from carbohydrate. Women okay. are also better at conserving carbohydrate. That's mostly because of estrogen. So estrogen shifts in the town. The biggest metabolic difference between men and women and its ramifications for long endurance performance has to do with estrogen's effect on shifting metabolism toward a greater reliance on fat and conserving the limited store of carbohydrate that we have. And that's a fast, I've been fascinated for many years, that if you take a man and a woman, they both go run at the same pace, even if it's the same relative pace, not just the same absolute pace, but relative to their own physiology, that women will rely more on fat and less on carbohydrate. And the research that's been done looking at rats, they uh, show that this is because of estrogen. Like if you give male rats estrogen, the same phenomenon happens. And that's how we know it's because of estrogen that's influencing this shift in metabolism. You know, we can't really do that kind of research on humans because it may be unethical to give males estrogen to look at metabolism differences. But we do it on, you know, we can do this kind of research on other animals. And so it's fascinating that when rats are, male rats are given estrogen, that they start to rely more on fat while they're running. Okay. This is a great segue to, I wanted to learn, I have more questions about Kenya, but we don't have the time for all my questions. So I wanted to kind of split this interview into two parts. And the second part is a focus on your research because you have dedicated your life to running and research into running topics. I had a tough time narrowing down everything that I wanted to talk with you about. So one of my questions had to do with when is the best time for women to be racing? Is it, So you're saying it's the best when estrogen is high? Yeah, so week two. You know, estrogen starts out low when you have your period, and then after the period ends, so maybe three, four, five days, depending on the woman, how long the period lasts, then estrogen is on the rise the rest of the first two weeks until ovulation right in the middle on day 14. And then estrogen drops quickly, and then it's progesterone's turn to become center stage. So for the first two weeks, the follicular phase, progesterone is flatlined, it's very low. And then right after ovulation, progesterone starts rising and peaks in the middle of the luteal phase, the second two weeks. So that would be like at the end of week three, very beginning of week four. And so the, the best time, endurance performance, and again, this is a little bit of a generality because every woman is gonna conform to this, but in general, Endurance performance, especially long endurance performance, is best at the time of the month when estrogen is rising, when estrogen is high. And so that would be week two, and especially toward the end of week two. Okay, that's interesting. And that brings me to another topic, because I had read that it's best to run a race when you're quote unquote, more like a man when your estrogen level is low. And that that is not what you have found. It also depends on the race, like anaerobic racing, like if you were to race a mile or 800 meters or, or the sprint events, those don't seem to be affected by the fluctuation of hormones. It only seems to be the uh, distance races, you know, especially longer races. That's one of the reasons why women are really good at ultra marathons. You know, sometimes they even beat all the men. You know, there was a woman from Arizona, Pamela Reed, who won the Badwater Ultra Marathon in 2002 and 2003. And so the performance difference between men and women, even at the level, shrinks the longer the race gets. And so in general, women are better the longer the race because of estrogen and how it affects metabolism. 
Interesting. Okay. So yeah, a lot of what people read, especially on Instagram, but online on people's blogs, it can be very confusing because there's a lot of conflicting information out there. So I really wanted to use this opportunity to sort of clear things up, clear up the confusion because you're, it's based on experience of your coaching, but also, I mean, you have done so much research and you've written a dozen books all related to the science of running. So I have a a pretty extensive list of questions for you that I kind of just wanted to get your sense and clear some things up. Okay. Let's do it. Let's do it. Okay. So mileage, a lot, most running coaches or running plans are going to give runners mileage, but is that the best way we should be training or should we be training, focusing on time on feet and why? Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, when you look at uh, what the purpose of the mileage is, yeah, it's all based on time. I mean, I wrote a great article about this years ago in running times magazine, which you know, that magazine doesn't exist anymore, but uh yeah, ultimately what causes a signal for adaptation is time because your legs have no concept of what a mile is. Like here in Kenya, they do things in kilometers. So it's you know, mileage is arbitrary. Your legs have no concept. And if you take two runners, one who's very fast and one who's slow, if they both run, say, 30 miles a week, well, the, the really fast runner, they're running less total time to cover the 30 miles a week. Than the slower runner. So the slower runner is actually under more stress, even though the mileage is the same. So it's really the stress because that's what we adapt to is stress. And so your legs know two things. It knows time and it knows intensity, how hard you're working for a given amount of time. That's what, you, you know, that's what your biology senses. So yeah, even though runners tend to think in miles or kilometers, it's really the amount of time that matters. And if you want, you can design the training based on time and then attach the kilometers or miles to it so that, you know, so that runners can be satisfied because we all think in terms of miles or kilometers, but the program, the planning of the training should be designed with time in mind. And then if you want to assign a mileage to that amount of time based on the pace that they're running, you know, then you could do it that way. Yeah. It can be really hard for runners not to, I mean, it's kind of like trying to tell a runner not to run with a watch. It's just, you get stuck on numbers and, you know, you get peace of mind from knowing, oh, I ran X amount of miles a week. So I must be, you know, getting fitter rather than um, looking at the time, but it's a lot easier to plan for time. Like, Hey, I have 90 minutes to run instead of, oh, I got to fit 12 miles in before my next meeting or whatever. Okay. So, oh, go ahead. And runners can still be anal about the numbers. They could just be anal about the time number instead of the distance number. Yes, that is an excellent point. Okay. Speaking of numbers, you hear a lot that 80% of our running should be easy and then the 20% should be hard, but that's not a good rule for everyone. Is that, is that right? That's very right. In fact, that whole thing is, that's a big myth. I see that on Instagram all the time. And for one thing, you know, the Kenyans don't, they don't plan their training that way. It's really that 80-20 is really just an artifact of the very high mileage that elite runners do. It can't come out to be any other way. Like if you're running 100 miles a week, there's no way it can become 50-50. You know, try doing 50% of your 100 miles a week faster than threshold pace. It's that you can't do it. And so that 80-20 is simply an artifact that the more you run, of course, the more is going to come out to be slow. That number is going to be more heavily weighted. It can't come out to be any other way. But someone who's running only 30 miles a week or 20 miles a week, that doesn't mean that they should plan their training to be 80% easy and 20% hard. And that fraction, that intensity distribution will also change throughout the year, depending on where you are in your training. Like in the beginning of the training program, it may be 100% easy. Whereas when you're getting ready for a race coming up in a few weeks, it may be skewed more toward the hard. Because it's more, you know, if you do a linear periodization model, then it starts out easy with higher volume. And then over time, you drop the volume and you increase the intensity. So that 80-20 will also change throughout the year. Mm-hmm. But the way people use that, they act like, well, because that's what the research has found on the best runners and other endurance athletes in the world, that everybody should train that way. But there's a lot of issues with that. Another issue is that, you know, easy is a relative term. 
you know, easy for the Kenyan runners is still a pretty fast pace compared to recreational runners. And so there's a lot of oxygen flow going to the muscle, which also represents the stimulus for adaptation. Like if you take a Kenyan runner whose VO2 max is 80, which is very, very high, and they're running easy at 70% of that for an easy run, well, 70% of 80 is still 56. So they're running easy at a VO2 of 56, which is higher than the VO2 max of a recreational runner. And so they have a lot of oxygen still being pushed into the vasculature of the muscles, even when they're running easy. Whereas if you take a recreational runner who has a VO2 max of 40 and they're running at an easy at 70% of that, 70% of 40 would only be 28. So they're running at a VO2 of 28. And so there's, that's another big issue that people never think about is that easy is a relative term. And so the Kenyans, when they're running easy, are still getting a huge training stimulus, whereas a recreational runner running easy, they may not be getting the same training stimulus because there's not, they're not running as, as high of a VO2 when they're running easy. I've never but the bigger issue about that. Yeah, that's a, that's a big thing that most people never think of. And that's why people shouldn't follow the people on Instagram because people on Instagram don't, you know, they don't have the education behind them to think about stuff like this. They don't understand. They just throw these numbers out and then they act like it's gospel. But there's a lot of other issues to think about. There's also the inverse relationship between volume and intensity. So it goes back to what I said before, that the higher the volume, the lower intensity is going to necessarily have to be because there's an inverse relationship between mm -hmm. volume and intensity. Now they're running twice a day here every day, except for their long run on Saturday. So they're running a total of 11 times per week. When you run that much, and you run over 100 miles per week, and you can't have it be any other way. Most of it is going to have to be easy. You can't run 120 miles a week and have 50% of it be fast. You'll kill you. Even the Kenyans can't handle yeah. that kind of intensity. Yeah. <laughs> a lot of different, it's not like the Kenyans or any other elite endurance athletes are planning it that way. They're, there's no planning here. They're just, they have this, this uh, pattern that they use and they've been using it for years and it works for them. And they're not planning their training to say, okay, it has to be 80% easy and 20% hard. They don't think like that here. They just do a hard workout on Tuesday. They do another hard workout on Thursday. They do a long run on Saturday. And then the rest of the time it's all filled in with mileage. So do the so Kenyans, do they become, um, even before you arrived as their coach, do, do Kenyans become fixated on numbers or do they go, do they show up knowing what workout they're going to run that day or how does that work? Sorry, I'm, I'm going on a tangent here. Just curious. Yeah, it depends on who they're training with, but yeah, usually they, they know what they're going to do or the few coaches that are here will tell them what they're going to do. But like, for example, one major workout they do here on Thursday, there's a famous fartlek that goes on. It, it tracks about 200 runners. Sometimes, you know, visitors will, will tack on to the pack, but uh, they get about 200 runners and they, they rotate three different workouts each week. It's all done on rocky dirt trails and uh, they do one minute hard, one minute easy for 5K to 10K. There's a 5K loop that they do that if you make a turn, you can extend it to 10K. So some people will stop at 5K. Some people will make the turn and go on for another 5K. So it's one minute hard, one minute easy. The next week, it's two minutes hard, one minute easy. And then the next week, it's three minutes hard, one minute easy. And then they just rotate those three workouts. So there's no really rhyme or reason for why they're doing one hard and one easy and two hard and one easy. That's just a pattern that they have followed. And that's what they do. And again, they're not, it's not like they're training for a race. I mean, this is just their life. This is kind yeah. of their job, but they show up to yeah. do every day with no kind of yeah. end job goal. Yeah, don't get paid for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Another, I've read, I think on your site, and I know that this also dovetails with a study that you did on Olympic trials qualifiers, that strength training is not the end all be all that a lot of us are hearing in the running community, that the Kenyans don't strength train, the Olympic trials qualifiers that you studied didn't have a big strength training regimen. Can you talk more about that? It just, uh, I mean, we could spend an hour just on this topic because this is, it really is uh, all over the internet and social media and people think that strength training is an elixir and, uh, you know, they think it's 
the cure-all for everything. And so there's, a, there's two major categories here. One is the performance category. Does it make you faster? And then the other is the injury prevention category. So from a performance standpoint, you know, if you look at the physiology of strength training and compare it to endurance training, there's actually a lot of incompatibilities between the two. And uh, there's no scientific evidence that strength training actually makes somebody a faster runner. There's only a few studies that have actually measured performance. In general, scientists don't like to measure performance because it's so complicated and you can't control it. Mm -hmm. Scientists like to control things. You know, in order to find out what works, you have to control all the confounding variables. And that's very hard to do when you're talking about performance. So the few studies that have actually measured performance, they usually use a time trial. It's not like a real race because there's too many variables in a real race. So they usually have a controlled time trial and they usually use something like a 3K or a short distance time trial. There's absolutely no research that has looked at long distance performance because that's impossible. How are you going to design a study that way? How are you going to have people race a marathon and then include strength training in their training program, but don't change anything else in their training program, just include strength training and then go have them run another marathon and be able to say that, well, it was the strength training that made them faster. That's impossible. You would have to have them run the same marathon on the same course under the same weather conditions. Everything else would have to be the same except for the strength training. And so it's very hard to control that. And so the little bit of research that has looked at performance has shown that performance can be improved, but that research did not compare strength training to doing more endurance training or doing more intense endurance training. They usually have one group of runners who does endurance training and then one group that does endurance plus strength training. They never have a third group that does more endurance training or more intense endurance training, like more interval workouts or more hill training. And so that's a big flaw of the research, because then you can't say that it's the strength training that made them faster, because maybe if they did more interval training or more hill training, maybe they would also get faster. So there's a lot of problems with the research. But again, this is something that... People don't talk about because if you just look at Instagram, they never they don't critically look at the research. They just I don't know how they're getting their information, but you have to critically read the research and understand what are the flaws of the research? What are they what is the research done right? What have they done wrong? What can be added? So that's one issue that there's no definitive evidence that strength training makes somebody a faster runner. Are you referencing some of the research into plyometrics? Because I know that there have been some studies that have shown plyometrics to improve running performance, but I'm, yeah. I'm assuming. So that's included in this research. So, okay. So yes, so the research that I'm talking about has included both heavy strength training and plyometrics. There's nothing on, you know, like the body weight training and all that stuff, you know, body weight circuits and the dumbbells and that kind of stuff is a complete waste of time. If you're going to strength train as a distance art, it has to be either heavy or powerful with speed, and that's the plyometrics. So power is equal to force times velocity, or you can think of as strength times speed. So there's two ways to improve muscle power production by increasing the strength of a muscle without making the muscle bigger. And so very heavy strength training for only a few reps per set where you're not going to induce hypertrophy because you don't want to make muscles bigger because that's going to hurt you as a distance runner. Or you can go the other way and just work on the speed part, and that's the plyometrics, working on how fast you can apply force to the ground. And so the jumps, the hops, all that kind of stuff. And so again, that research, nothing has been looked at on marathon or half marathon performance. And all of the studies that have looked at performance, they usually use a time trial rather than a real race, because that's pretty uncontrollable. Mm -hmm. it's, hard to, it's hard to be able to say that it was the plyometrics that actually made that runner faster. Are there any extras outside of running that you think athletes should be doing or even recreational runners? Cause it, you just, you see so many, you know, you should do yoga, you should do Pilates, you should make sure you work on your mobility. What's actually worthwhile to help your performance and keep you healthy. It really is running. I mean, I hate to, to be such a purist about it, but there's different forms of running. Like I keep telling people, hill training is probably the best strength training a distance runner can do. 
You can do bounding drills up the hill. You can do sprints up the hill to work on power. You can do longer hills to work on more of the, the cardiovascular adaptations that come from hill training because you can really increase your heart rate going up the hill. And so, the, so hill training can be very valuable to improve strength and power and, and the, the, the strength of the Achilles tendon and of the calves, the things that propel you forward that can all be accomplished by doing hills. You don't need to go into a gym and do squats and deadlifts and, and all that stuff. Plus, all that stuff is on two legs. And when you do bounding drills up a hill, you run up a hill, you're on one leg at a time, which is how you run. So that really is the most important thing that a runner can do, but you're still running. So it's, you know, you're getting the, the neuromuscular benefit as well. There's not much translation from doing squats or deadlifts in a gym to the running movement. And so that brings me to the other part of the equation, the, 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 um, the injury prevention. You know, people think that, oh, the only way to prevent injuries is through strength training. But again, the research does not support that statement. In fact, the research on running injuries shows that running injuries are multifactorial. And so if being weak is not the reason why you're getting injured, then strength training is not going to cure that problem. You have to understand the factors that that are involved in why that runner got injured. If it's a biomechanical problem, then strength training is not going to solve that problem. You have to work on the biomechanics. And so it, you have to look at what is causing the injury in the first place to understand what, what can prevent it from happening. You know, the research does not support that people who don't strength train are at a greater risk of injury. That's not true. And people on Instagram act like, oh, if you have to strength train, well, they don't strength train here. You know, and people, again, people only see what the very best runners in the world are doing because that's what gets publicized. Mm -hmm. People don't see what the thousands and thousands of other runners are doing. You know, and they run on, you know, most of the running they do here is on red dirt, rocky trails. I mean, the, the side roads here, there's very few paved roads here and all the side roads, they're very rugged. There's a lot of rocks and the rocks don't move. They're like built in, they're part of the ground. And so that's how they build their, their foot strength. You know, they have to run on the, the rugged terrain and make sure they lift their foot up because if they don't lift their foot up quickly, they're going to trip over the rocks. I just tripped the other day. I was proud of myself. I made it here almost six weeks without falling. And just the other day, I finally took my first still because it's, it's very rugged. You have to look down. You have to make sure you're looking where you're, you're placing your foot on every step. And it's rugged. And so, uh, you know, that's how you can build a strength. You can run on rugged terrain and you can do hill training. There are other ways to build that strength. You know, there's not, again, there's, there's not much translation from or conversion from doing things in a gym to the actual movement of running. I mean, obviously, um, the challenge is the impact of running. And so if you want to improve your strength, you need to do it in a sustainable way in which you're increasing mileage at very carefully. You don't want to just start throwing in hill workouts willy nilly, you know, every other oh, day, yeah. because then you, right. you are going to get injured. Right. Yeah. Everything has to be done system. Anytime you add a new stress, a little bit of that stress has to be added first, let your body recognize it, adapt to it. And then you add a little bit more stress and I mean, that's the whole training process, no matter what you're doing, whether it's intensity or volume, you know, that you just add a little bit of a stress at a time, you recover from that stress, allow your body to adapt to it, and then you add slightly more stress. So I read the other day, something that surprised me in which you have workouts designed in which runners will show up and they don't know how many reps of an interval they're going to be doing. Can you, can you talk us through that? Cause that, I mean, just mentally, and I, and I, I understand the the thinking behind it, but mentally that's hard to grapple with. I feel like. Yeah. And again, this uh, gets back to understanding, well, what is it you're trying to accomplish with the workout? And, and it's especially important to group workouts where they're all doing the same thing. But the, the major reason for it is because the, the number of reps is arbitrary. I mean, you have no idea how many reps you need to do to cause fatigue. And it's the fatigue that you respond to. That's what you adapt to. You got to be tired. 
If you're not tired at the end of the workout, you, there's no stimulus there to adapt to. You just maintain the status quo. And so to know how many reps you're going to do at the start of the workout, there's a physical reason for not doing that. And then there's the, the psychological reason. Because say you're going to do a workout of 10 times 400 meters. What do you think happens when you get to rep number eight and number nine and number 10? You feel tired because you think, well, I'm close to the end of the workout. And so I must be tired. But if you leave it open-ended and you just focus on one rep at a time, you just focus on what you're doing when you're doing it, then a lot of times you're going to surprise yourself and you'll end up doing more than what you thought you could. And so from the psychological aspect of it, you don't limit yourself. You just are forced to focus on the rep that you're on and not think about what's coming in front of you because you don't know what's coming. You're just focused on the work that you're doing when you're doing it. And then from the, the physiological aspect is of causing fatigue. And especially when you're in a big group of people, you know, not everyone, you can't tell the whole group, oh, you're going to do six reps because they're not all going to have the same degree of fatigue at six reps. Some people may need to stop the workout at five. Some people may need to stop the workout at nine. And so the, the rep number is, is arbitrary. What matters is causing fatigue. It doesn't matter if you do 10 reps or 11 reps or 12 reps. What matters is causing a sufficient amount of fatigue that you respond to and adapt to. And it's really true. I was just going to say, it's really important, again, in a group workout, not just from the fatigue, but also looking at how long it takes, going back to the time that we were talking about before. Because if everybody in the group is running, say they're doing, again, 400 meter reps, or let's say 800 meter reps. If everyone's doing 800 meter reps, and really fast runners are doing them in 230, two and a half minutes, and the slower runners are doing them in 330, well, then that means on every rep, you know, if they're running at VO2 max pace, that means every rep, the slower runners are running a minute longer at the same relative intensity at VO2 max intensity. So if everyone does five reps, then that means the slower runners actually had a stress, more stressful workout because they spent more total time at VO2 max intensity than the faster runners who are covering the distance in a shorter amount of time. Right. Yeah. And that a lot of people show up to the track in which they, they want to, they feel tired. <laughs> they want to fatigue, but they go out and they run as hard as they can, or they skimp on the recovery in between. And that um, is counterproductive. Why is that not going to spur the physiological adaptations that you want? Why should you not go to the well on every workout? Well, again, this comes back to the, the balance of stress and recovery. I mean, you don't want to go to the well every single time, but sometimes you do have to go to the well to really force adaptations to be made. But then you have to make sure that you really recover from that. You know, that's why the easy must be very, very easy so that the hard can be very, very hard. But with each workout, it's all about optimization. So it's not about running as fast as you can. It's about running only as fast as you need to, to meet the purpose of the workout. So the purpose of the workout is to train VO2 max and you run at VO2 max pace, no faster. The mm -hmm. way you make the workout harder is by doing more volume at the correct pace rather than doing less volume and faster than the correct pace. Because again, it goes back to what we said before that there's an inverse relationship between volume and intensity. So the faster you run each rep, the fewer number of reps you're going to have to be able to do. And so if the purpose of the workout is to train VO2 max, you run at VO2 max pace. If the purpose of the workout is to train lactate threshold, you run at lactate threshold pace. You don't run faster than you need to, to meet the purpose of the workout. Okay. We are running short on our time and I still have a lot of questions to ask you. So let's see. I'm going to ask you one more and 180, 180 is the magic number that you see so many times as far as what a runner's cadence should be. Is that a number we should be focusing on? And is it more important to focus on the length of your stride or the turnover? Yeah, it's a good question. So if you were to go outside and run on the flat ground and start out slow and count the number of steps in a minute, and then you pick up the pace and then you count the number of steps again in a minute, you should notice that the number of steps doesn't change much. You'll only take maybe a few more steps over the whole minute. You may not take any more steps over the whole minute. What influences the change of speed is the stride length. Because without even thinking about it, when you try to run faster, you apply more force to the ground. So it's Newton's third law of physics. 
that we all learned about in high school. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. So the more force you apply down and backward against the ground, then the more distance you're going to cover with each step, you're projected forward a farther distance. And so that you don't even think about that. That automatically happens when when I say pick up the pace, you're going to start applying more force to the ground down and backward so that you are projected more forward. So stride rate doesn't change much. It's a pretty constant variable. And so what people should focus more on is stride length, but the stride length comes from applying more force directly down into the ground, not from reaching out in front of you. The only time in which people should think more about their stride rate is if their leg is coming down way far ahead of their center of mass, center of gravity because then it's almost as if they're creating a break. So what people should focus on, not the number of steps, they should focus on where they place their foot when it lands on the ground. And it should be as close to underneath your hips as possible. It's never gonna be directly underneath a person's hips. It will always be slightly in front, but you should try to land as close to directly underneath your hips as possible. And if you focus on that, then the stride rate will take care of itself because people tend to operate in a very narrow range of stride rates based on what is most economical for that individual run. So focus on foot placement underneath the body more than how many times your legs are turning over in a minute. Yes, exactly. So you discovered running, it was it sixth grade? Yeah. I mean, it was a little bit prior to that. It was, you remember those uh, presidential physical fitness tests? Oh, that's right. Yes. So there were two runs as a part of the battery of tests. One was a 50-yard sprint and one was a 600-yard run. And so that was the first time I actually ran and saw that I was pretty quick. And then it was in middle school in sixth grade when I was more formally introduced to it as part of the track team. So I did track in middle school and I was a sprinter in the beginning. I ran the 100 meters and 400 meters. And I still love those races. I mean, it just I've always been fascinated with pure speed. And so uh, that's what got me into running was the sprinting. Yeah, you know, you jogged my memory. And I think that might be kind of when I got hooked on running too. (laughs) Come to think of it. Um, I love those 50-yard dashes. They were really fun. Yeah, there's something freeing about just running literally as fast as you can possibly go. I mean, with all distance, there's all pacing involved. But with all-out sprints, I mean, it is as raw as it gets. It's like an animal in the wild. And you're literally just moving your limbs as fast as they can go. And there's something very uh, freeing about that. Oh, 100%. I think I read an article a couple of weeks ago where Ryan Hall was quoted and he was just talking about loving the feeling of flight. And um, I mean, personally, that's what I've been, I've been waiting for so long because I've been injured for so long and I'm just can't wait to get back to that feeling. It is, you're right. It is very freeing. It is pure joy it connects very much with your upcoming TED talk, I think. Exactly. And I think that's why we feel that way about running fast is that because it is so primal, it is because it gets to who we are as animals because all mammals run. That's who we are. And I think that's why we feel that way when we run because it gets to who we are. And so is that what has kept you passionate about running over the past several decades? Uh, There's a lot. I mean, that's one big part of it, but another is, you know, it's, it really is a metaphor for life that, you know, the, the pacing issue, the, the dealing with discomfort issue, you know, on any given day, you can decide to become uncomfortable with running. You can push the pace and see how much you can handle. And, and running gives you that obstacle. It gives you that chance. It gives you that opportunity to deal with discomfort. And you can seek that out. And, and that helps you deal with discomfort in other areas of your life. And that's pretty powerful. Oh, I agree with you so much. And you put that so beautifully. So where can people learn more about you? Uh, well, my website, drjasoncarp.com and, and on all the different social media platforms. My name on social media is the same, Dr. Jason Carp. Making it easy. Well, awesome. Thank you so much for this conversation. I think we're going to have to have a part two because I actually only got through like a third of my questions for you and you have two books coming out and obviously you're learning so much in your experience in Kenya. So I'm really glad we were able to overcome technology and the glitches it may bring and be able to connect today. 
Oh, yeah, my pleasure. And I'm happy to do it again. Awesome. Thanks, Jason. Thank you very much, Whitney. Thank you, Jason. And thank you all for listening to The Passionate Runner. For full show notes for each episode, which includes a summary, key takeaways, quotes, and any resources we mentioned are available at runnerclick.com slash podcast. Be sure to follow and subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. And if you're enjoying the content and getting value from these episodes, please leave a rating and review at ratethispodcast.com slash TPR. We'll be sure to read those out on future episodes. See you next time.